0: We are up to chapter 1. I want to do Mishnah 8 and Mishnah 9 together. As we've mentioned previously, every Mishnah begins by telling us who's offering this teaching in the Mishnah. And these, again, are the third Zugos. As we mentioned, after the men of the Great Assembly who were leading the nation as a body, we have Shimon Atzarek and Tidnos, and then we have Zugos. Five pairs of great sages who are going to be at the leadership of the nation. And the third ones is the ones of our Mishnah's. It's Yehuda ben Taba'i and Shimon ben Shetach. These people were the heads of the nation and we're talking about the second century before the common era. Let's read what they say because both of them talk about very similar concepts. A lot of the commentaries lump them together, so we'll do the same. Yehuda ben Tabai Omer. Yehuda ben Tabai says, "Do not make yourself an advocate who arranges pleas before a judge. When the litigants are standing before you, let them all be in your eyes as guilty. But when they are dismissed from you, let them be in your eyes as innocent. Why? Because they accepted their your judgment. So three ideas of how to approach as a judge, how to approach it. First of all, don't be an advocate." your judge is to adjudi- your job as a judge is to adjudicate not to guide and direct the litigants a judge cannot be a lawyer it cannot be an advocate the judge has to be very impartial and cannot assist or guide or direct the litigants in any way that's number 1 number 2 you have to be impartial when you're a judge and you see one person on one side the other person on the other side You have to view them both as guilty. You can't say, well, this guy looks, look at him. This guy looks like a terrorist. This guy looks like a criminal. And the other one looks really nice and really moral, really upstanding. No. You have to be, you have to be, be impartial and be able to judge the case on its merits. And finally, when they leave and you rule one as innocent and one as guilty or one as righteous and one as wicked and they accept it, you have to treat them as being righteous. That's the first teaching. And the second teaching, Mishnah 9, is Shimon ben Shetach. Omer Shimon Shetach says, be extensive in interrogating the witnesses. When you interrogate, this is not talking about the litigant, it's talking about the witnesses. You have to judge the evidence very rigorously and be cautious with your words, lest from them they will learn to lie. Okay, so let's try to figure out who these people were and try to see how perhaps their life experience, it informed on their teachings. Really interesting here. These people are existing at a very volatile time in Jewish history. We have the Hellenists, we have the Sadducees, we have the Baitus, we have all these different splinter sects that are erupting amongst our nation. And these two leaders are coming at a time we're keeping the Jewish people together as a nation is a very important, necessary, and vital, and critical task. And it's interesting to find that there's several teachings in the Talmud regarding judgment calls that these people had to make, Shema and Ben-Tabai had to make pertaining to judgments, and it's not a stretch to suggest that these episodes, they're the ones that guided them, informed them to making these teachings and to giving their contribution to Perkei specifically with respect to how to judge. The first story is brought down in two places in the Talmud, in the book of Makros on page 5b and the book of Chagiga on page 16b. And it's talking about a case of false witnesses. So you have two witnesses come to court and they allege whatever they allege, the court's job is to evaluate and assess the likelihood of this being true or not. What if you find that the witnesses are liars? They're false witnesses. So, under certain circumstances, the witnesses themselves try to, they they, they actually receive the punishment that they try to get towards the litigant, towards the defendant. So for example, suppose two witnesses come and say, this individual, this Joe, he's a murderer. We saw him murder. And therefore, it's a capital offense. And of course, capital offense is taken very seriously in Jewish court of law. And they interrogate and investigate the witnesses. And they find that these witnesses are liars. They were not privy to this event. They're making it up. These witnesses themselves get the punishment they tried to bring about on Joe. They themselves will get executed. That's the halach under certain circumstances. In the Talmud of the book of Matros, it says that Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai, he was a judge and he is lamenting the fact that he is not going to experience the resurrection of the dead. He's going to be punished. Why? Because he executed a false witness who was a Sadducee not following the halacha properly. And therefore, he was very zealous in trying to punish the Sadducees that he wasn't careful in how he meted out or how he oversaw the judgment and the judicial procedure. And therefore, he says, my lot in life is one that I am going to Suffer eternal consequences because of my behavior. And his friend, Shimon Mechetach, tells him, You spilled innocent blood. Because you ruled that this false witness needs to be executed when they don't indeed need to be executed. And right away, Yehudab ben Tabai, this great scholar, he said, I'm not ever going to administer a judgment unless Shimon Mechetach is next to me. And the story continues that every night Rabbi Hudam and Tabai would go to the grave of the person that he executed improperly, and he would pray there and he would try to get gain forgiveness. And he would scream on top of his lungs. And everyone was, was such a bizarre experience. Everyone hears every night from the from the from the cemetery, they hear someone streaming loud noises and they thought maybe it was the voice of the dead. And Yehudah Ben-Tabai says, no, it wasn't the voice of the dead, it was my voice. And in fact, I'm going to die soon. And once I die, the voice will stop. And indeed, he died and the voice stopped. That's the story. So it's interesting that we see that this great scholar, he made a mistake and he judged improperly. And why did he judge him properly? Because the defendant was a Sadducee. And the Sadducees were persona non grata amongst the nation, certainly amongst the scholars. And there was a huge effort amongst all the great rabbis to try to weed out and get rid of this faction of the nation. And Rabbi Yudabandabai was a little bit overzealous. He didn't treat him as being guilty until innocent until proven guilty. He didn't do everything that's necessary to ensure it that impartiality. impartiality, that that justice is obtained. He was telegraphing, so to speak, how this case should be reached. He was trying to find the conclusion that he wanted. And he made a mistake, and he recognized he made a mistake. So what did he do? He said, I'm not going to judge unless Shimon Moshaddah is with me, and he, he tried to repent as much as he could. And it's not a surprise uh, as a result when we see that his eternal lesson that he gives us is one that's really oriented around judging, but judging in a way that the proper result is obtained. Really interesting story about Rabbi Yudah ben Tabbayu. Now, Shimon ben has some of the most interesting stories in all of Talmud. Uh, first of all, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, Shimon ben Shetach was the brother of the Queen Shlom Tzion, who was married to Alexander Yanai. Alexander Yanai was a Sadducee who became a king of Israel. And during one uh, time, he actually went on a campaign of assassinating great rabbis. And the only rabbi that was allowed to stay alive in Israel was Shem Ben Shetach because he was his brother-in-law. But regardless, there's another great episode about Shimon Ben Shetach uh, with respect to judicial procedure. The Mishnah says that what, evidence is admissible in a court of law. So it has to be evidence that the witnesses see something. So in a case of murder, the witnesses have to see the murderer murdering the victim. They have to see everything. However, there is a certain case where there's such overwhelming circumstantial evidence. And there's a temptation because you really know what happened. You didn't see it, but you know what happened. There's a temptation for the witnesses to... Connect the dots and provide that as testimony, and the Mishnah says you can't do that. So what's an example? So the Talmud says, what's this example of overwhelming circumstantial evidence? And it brings a story of Shimon Chetach. Shimon he saw someone who was pursuing his friend with a knife, and they run into a cave. And shil says, I'm running after him. I'm trying to save. We'll see what's going on. And I see that he's taking a huge sword in his hand. And he goes into the cave. And he comes out. And the, the sword is full of blood. And I run inside. And I see the person he was chasing is dying. He's all slashed up. And he's dying. So he runs outside. And he tells the guy with the, with, with, with the, with the sword. He tells him, wicked one. Who killed this guy? It's either me or you. There's someone else around. And then we know it's not me. And the story goes, and, but he follows up and says, what can I do? I cannot bring you to court because this is not admissible testimony to court. And what happens, the Torah says that the, the two witnesses, you have to have two witnesses, only with two witnesses. However, I'm cursing you that God should take care of you. And the story goes that right afterwards, a snake slithers up and kills the perpetrator. That's the story. Again, we see a case where a, a judge might be tempted to make a ruling that seems moral, but it's against Torah law and against judicial procedure. And we see here is is here is the one who is really teaching this lesson for all eternity, that even if it's really unimpeachable, the evidence, by our standards, we know what happened, but the Torah says very clearly you have to have two witnesses who witness the entire event. And this, even though you know for sure what happened, not admissible. And then there's another wild episode, you'm in This is my favorite one. It's a very long episode, but it's it's so strange and so wild and so dramatic, I'll tell it to you in its entirety. It begins with a tax collector. And at the time, uh, tax collectors are public enemy number one because the way tax collecting used to work, it wasn't a responsibility on every individual. It was a responsibility in every community. So the king would say, give me X amount of dollars from this town. And the tax collector goes with an army of men and starts collecting from door to door. And if the king says, give me 20,000 gold coins for this city, the tax collector is able to keep everything above that, that point. So if the tax collector collects 25 or 28,000, the rest is all his. So these were really bad people because they had a certain motivation to try to squeeze as much as they could out of the masses. So tax collectors are generally considered some of the worst uh, people amongst the amongst the nation. So the story goes, there's a tax collector, a Jewish person, but he was a wicked one. And this is brought down in the Talmud in Sanhedrin on page 44b. This wicked tax collector, he dies. And on the same day that he dies, the greatest rabbi of the city dies as well. And you have two funerals. You have the great rabbi, and the lowly tax collector, both being both processions going on at the same time. So what happens? You have the tax collector's family and two friends, and they're carrying him Nebuchadnezzar. Like the most pitiful example of a funeral procession. Everyone hates that guy. Everyone's so delighted that he finally died. And then you have the most prestigious funeral, where the great rabbi, everyone from the city is coming. Everyone's coming to pay their respects for this great fallen leader. And both processions are going and they're, so to speak, they're parallel to each other. And in middle of these processions, a group of marauding conquistadors attack and all the people scatter and they drop their caskets and they flee for the hills. And everyone's hiding until this rampaging mob leaves. And they come back, and they continue the fu- funeral processions. But there's a mix-up. And they don't realize that they swap the caskets. So all the Tastalector, suddenly, everyone's carrying him. And everyone's giving him honor, and they bury him with great fanfare. And the great rabbi is right, picked up by the Tastalector's family and is buried uh, in a very embarrassing way. A pauper's grave, yes. And there's one person who was able to see this from, from behind and he's trying to scream at everyone, no, you got to mixed up and no one's listening to him. And he realizes what happens. And he's very distressed that his great re- rabbi, his great teacher, the great Torah scholar was buried with such shame and disgrace whereas this tax collector this good for nothing, this wicked person, he managed to get a very respectable and honored <laughs> burial. So he's screaming, no one's listening to him, and he's very sad and dejected. And he's trying to figure out what sin did the great rabbi do to have such a shame and what merit did the to do to be given such an honor. So that night, he has a dream. And his great rabbi appears to him in a dream. And he says to him, don't worry. Don't be sad. Let me show you what kind of honor and stature I have now in the whole, in, 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 in paradise, in Gan And he shows him the great honor that he has in the afterlife. And he says, come, let me show you the punishment of that tax collector. And they show, he shows him the punishment of the tax collector. But he says, there was one time this tax collector, he did one mitzvah. There was once an official Remember, the letter had a motivation to bribe the officials, right? Because he wanted to keep his cushy job. So he made a huge party for this official that was coming to town. And in the end, the plans went awry and the official didn't show. So he had this huge meal that he had prepared for the official. And now he, he had nothing to do with it. So he gave it to the poor people. He did one mitzvah. And I did one sin because there was once that I heard someone belittling and denigrating Torah scholars, but I didn't protest. And that was my sin. And therefore, I had one sin. He had one mitzvah. And therefore, God made it all equal by giving him reward for his mitzvah, by giving him a important and distinguished burial, and gave me my punishment for my sin by having a very embarrassing burial. And this person, this collector, he is sitting in the bowels of hell and he's going to be there until Shimon ben Shetach dies and takes his place. And here's where it gets really strange. Because Shimon ben Shetach, he's the greatest leader of the people. He's even a greater scholar than this person who's giving the dream to this student. And he hears this and he wakes up in a cold sweat Shimon ben Shetach? Why Shimon ben Shetach? So his teacher tells him why? Because he is allowing all these witches who are practicing witchcraft and idolatry and all this crazy stuff in the city of Ashkelon. And therefore, he is going to replace the tax collector in that lowest level of hell. So right away, the student wakes up and he rushes to Shimon ben Shetach. And he tells him everything that happens. And he runs and tells him. And right away, Shumatel decides to address this problem. There was a temple full of witches, and he says he's going to attack them. He's going to undermine them. Again, this shows, again, what was happening at the time, where there's all these deviant movements amongst the nation. So he goes and he takes 80 great, mighty young men. And he goes to this temple where all these witches are hanging out. Again, it's getting stranger, right? The story. And he's, so he has these 80 80 young men and it's a pouring rain outside and he walks into this temple and he tells them, I'm the greatest sorcerer out there. Why? Because I'm going to bring in 80 men in here and even though it's pouring rain outside, they're all going to be dry. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How are you going to do that? So he tells, he had previously planned with his 80 young men that they had taken clean clothing, dry clothing, and put them in a hat. So it was, it was, so that way it was dry. And he makes the queue, and suddenly 80 young men walk in and they're all dry. And the women are like, how did they do that? And while they're still planning, each one of those men grabs one of the women and lifts her up in the air. And the story goes, Talmud says, is that these women had certain powers. How they had it, separate question. But they had certain powers, but their powers were only possible when they were firmly placed on the ground. And the idea being is that these women were able to tap into uh, to impurity. And they were able to kind of pull from the ground, from the lowest depths, these powers – how that is a separate separate discussion, and therefore, but once they were severed from the ground, when they weren't connected, they had no powers. So each one of these mighty men lifts one up in the air and they've got them. you trapped them. and Shu Mach takes these eighty women and he brings them to the town square, and he hangs them all in one day. That's the story. So what happens? So there's eighty dead witches, and of course, these witches have families. And these witches' families are not happy with Shimon Shetach that he's rooting out all these people, and they decided to get back at him. So what they do? They got two witnesses to make up a lie and to tell a story about the son of Shimon They said, "Oh, Shimon Shetach's son, he committed a capital crime," and they made up the whole story. But it was you know, they weren't able to prove that these were liars. So the Jewish court has to follow the witnesses. The witnesses say this person is guilty of a capital crime and they had to execute him. So the Tekken Shemesh had the son to be executed and he makes a pronouncement. And he says like this, he says, if I committed this sin that I am currently about to be executed for, my death should not be an atonement for me. However, if I'm innocent, if I did not commit this capital crime, if there's liars, these two witnesses are liars, made up the whole story, let my death be an atonement of all my sins and let the yoke of shame and the yoke of punishment be on their shoulders forever. And the witnesses hear that and they confess. And they say, we made up the whole story. It was only because... Shimon Shetach, you killed our, our 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 relatives, the 80 wit- witches, and we made up the whole story. But the halacha is, is that when a witness, when he says a testimony in court, they cannot extract it. And in, in the end, Shimon Shaddach's son dies. So again, we see a very crazy story from beginning to end. Uh, but that really was a central episode in Shimon life. And that revolves around proper judicial procedure. And proper, and he tells, what's his teaching? You have to thoroughly interrogate the witnesses. And of course, that it's not a stretch to say that that was informed by this great episode. So I want to just share some of the lessons and and, and wrap up this teaching, these Mishnas. So the first clause of the Mishnah was not to advocate, not to be advocates. So various different interpretations of what that means. Rashi tells us it means not to reveal the judgment to one of the parties without the presence of the counterpart. Don't, so to speak, advocate for one without the other. And this is a central uh, core element of Jewish jurisprudence is the fact you have to be impartial not to favor one over the other. Uh, Alternatively, it means not to guide the litigants how to navigate the argumentation process. Or don't approach the judgment with a preconceived conclusion as if it is organized before you. Uh, you may err. Treat them as equal. Otherwise, you can't judge them fairly. And after the judgment is passed, you have to treat them as being righteous. You have to assume that from their perspective, they weren't acting with malice. And finally, the second Mishnah tells us the relationship, the first mission tells us the relationship that, that the judge have, have with the litigants the second about the witnesses, don't teach them how to lie. Interrogate them very rigorously. Don't give them your reasoning because next time they may use it to lie. Again, these are very important lessons that a judge needs to do. And it is really interesting to learn about the backstory of the people who are teaching us these lessons and the volatile times in which they emerge And the crazy episodes that they had to, that they encountered or they participated in in their lives. And again, maybe the lesson for us is that we should try to take lessons from what we encounter in our lives. Certainly, if we are judges or if we're forced to make a judicial call, we should do it in the most, most righteous, most ethical, and most prudent way possible.